The purpose of this podcast is simple, to encourage, empower, and inspire athletes of all walks of life in their strength endeavors, faith walk, and of course, their best options for post-workout late night meals. Firstly, and as always, I'd like to thank my sponsors, Skull Smash Ammonia and Raw Grip Chalk for their consistent support and encouragement. For the best hard-hitting ammonia in the game, there's none better than Steve at Skull Smash. And if you're looking to hit a brutal pull and need that added grip, Raw Grip's Liquid Chalk is the highest quality on the market right now. You can head over to their Instagram pages to get some products. But today, I'm chatting with James Strickland, an elite-level powerlifter, world record holder, and one of the best raw bench pressers on the planet boasting a 672-pound bench press at a body weight of just 292. You are not going to want to miss this episode as we talk all things bench, the animal cage, and more. So sit back, relax, and let's dive in. James, thanks for coming on, man. Man, I, I appreciate the opportunity. This is an honor. Yeah, I, I was as I was starting to look through the different guys I wanted to get on this season, uh, I remembered a friend of mine got the chat with you last year when we were up at the Arnold at the Animal Pack event uh, at Power Shack. And I remembered you were just so personable with him because he's one of the worst bench pressers I've ever seen in the world. Uh, and you still were working with him regardless. And so I was like, man, I got to get this guy on and hear what he's got to say. Well, I, you know, I don't know who that was. I'm sure if you told me their name or at least show me a picture, I would know exactly who it is because I don't forget a face. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think it's it says all the more that you're willing to, to sit down and just chat with people. I know really your motto is you don't want to take your success for granted, and so you always want to be able to help other people, and I think that's just so huge in the powerlifting community. Well, you know, I'm glad you said that because uh, that's actually one of the things that irks me the most, and it's I don't want to take it in a negative way but or take the conversation that direction, but I don't get the – the mindset of being on top or being, you know, I don't think that I'm on top. I, and I, yeah. it's, it's hard to say that. Cause I know a lot of guys look at me as being on the top. I always look past where I'm at, at where I want to be. And yeah. so that's where I put myself every single day. I wake up. If I don't, if I'm not striving to be better at something, then I really don't have any motivation to get out of bed. I just, there's nothing there for me, but part of success is measuring or part of measuring where you're at successfully is how many people have you helped along the way? Mm. And if you don't have anybody that you can say are multiple people, then I don't want to be the person that talks down on your success, but you're not as valuable to the, to the world as you think you are in terms of what you're able to give back. Cause that's how I measure success. I don't measure success in the number of medals or the world records or, you know, all that stuff can be broken. That's all mm -hmm. just very, I don't think it's valuable at all. I think it's good at some point in time to, to strive for that. But when it's all said and done, do your records really matter? Cause they're going to be broken. I mean, they're going to be shattered. Somebody's going to walk all over them someday and disrespect those records a at the current time. They mean something, but, the longevity of the sport, the longevity of your life. That's what I think is how I measure everything. So, and it doesn't matter what I'm doing, what sport, what I'm doing family wise volunteer. I mean, every aspect of my life, if I can't say that I've reached out and tried to help somebody else get better at what they're trying to get better at, especially if I'm really good at something and I'm not helping them to, to at least move in the direction of, of where I'm at success wise, 
then I'm, I'm wasting space. I'm not really doing what I'm here on this earth to do. I don't think. Yeah, dude, that's so huge. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I mean, I, I think we're just in a time of where social media can really just elevate people. And I think so quickly we forget that everyone's just another person. You know, we're all just trying to figure stuff out. And I think there, there can be, especially with weight training, there's that intimidation factor. You know, I remember the first time, you know, before I first competed, I think my first comp was March of last year. And I remember at the Arnold, I met uh, Rob Phillips. And there was something okay. like in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I mean, it's just right. Like, he's just another guy. But I still managed to go up to him. I was like, man, I said I was never going to do this to someone, but I'm still fangirling. <laughs> and he was like, dude, like, <laughs> I'm just a guy. Like, I started lifting when I was like 40. And, you know, I think it was a good reality check for me because it's so easy to look at the numbers and be like, holy crap, like this dude probably would never even remember I existed. And then you remember, man, like we all started, you know. Somewhere. So that's really interesting that you brought up Rob because Rob and I, we go back quite a bit as far as me knowing who he is and kind of following him and, and still in awe. I mean, there's there, there'll be names that I dropped during this podcast that – I might be above them, I guess, on the ranking chart, or they might be above me or whatever. But that doesn't re- – I don't even look at things like that anymore. It, it Really what I look at is are they – you know, what what about them makes them who they are? It, and not just – because, yeah, he squats 930 pounds, and that's a freaking amazing. Yeah. And – you know, I think he still holds the all-time records in two different weight classes. And if he doesn't, he's right up there with them. So it's it's definitely – he has his credentials. But I remember – and I say I remember. I still look up to him. But I remember when I used to look up to him and go, my goodness, if I could just get a 2,000 total, I think I might feel like I've arrived. If I can just squat 700, I think I might feel like I'm, I'm able to, to, to stand in comparison. Now – Obviously, it's two different things. You know, 700 and 900 squat, two different things. But it, it'd be like somebody benching 225 saying, man, I wish I could just bench 300. And seeing somebody bench 400 and not feeling worthy enough, I guess, to even compare themselves. And so, it's, yeah. it, you know, it, it, it's all relative. Um, and I remember seeing him at Boss of Bosses. Uh, and I've seen him at several meets. I've competed with him at several different meets. But it really blew my mind at boss of bosses five recently. I think that was five, the one in August. Uh, when I went out there with my own goals in mind, I knew he was going to be there. I knew Rob Hall was going to be there. and My buddy, Jeff Yonker and a, a bunch of other great lifters. And we all did our thing. And at the end of the day, I put up a pretty darn good total, you know, not what I really thought I could put up. I thought I could put up more, but definitely was impressed with myself. And, and I don't say that with an ego. I just mean, Sometimes I go into a meet with a little bit of reservation of like, can I really do what I want to do? I mean, yeah. is it going to happen? Because there's a lot of things that go. I mean, you can be confident all day long, but I think a true athlete knows there's a chance that something might go wrong and you don't want it to. So you worry, you know, you, you plan for the best, but you kind of, you know, go into things with hopefully a little bit cautious. And it keeps you, I think, keeps me from getting injured. And that's a whole other story. But, you know, long story short, I, I went in. Did my 2182 total, and we were sitting at the awards dinner, and I was sitting next to Rob Hall and Jeff Yonker, who's actually a training partner of mine here in Houston. Jeff Yonker won it. He got first. I believe I got second in, in like, total-wise, and then Rob was third, and then Rob Philippus might have been fourth. But, 
I mean, we all had really good days. I mean, we all totaled right at 2,100 or, or more. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking these, – these are numbers. <laughs> and um, I remember talking to Rob Hall and going, dude, I just pulled up the all-time, you know, biggest 308 totals. And I'm number like – I forgot what it was. I think it was number eight or something. Or in the 308, I was like right there in top ten. And he goes, dude, that's a – that's amazing. And I went, dude, that, you know, and this was, this was Rob Hall that I was talking to. And, right. and, you know, to hear another lifter that I look up to that is out total me, uh, even though I might've beaten him at this meet, he still has a bigger total than me. So I still look up to him um, in terms of powerlifting. And so for him to say, man, that's a really good job. It felt like I had arrived, you know, like you're, you got that camaraderie with other lifters. But what really got me is when I talked to Rob Philippus, Later that night, he was like, hey, man, I really want to congratulate you. You had a great meet. And I went, hey, you did too. I mean, you did pretty good. <laughs> you squatted over 900 pounds. I mean, my goodness. And I'm over here squatting 760 thinking it's, you know, I'm, I'm tough and big. But, you know, you blew me out of the water by almost 200 pounds on your squat. He goes, yeah, but you out-totaled me. And you out-totaled my best total of all time, like in my life. And I went, no. And I couldn't believe it because I was like, no, I didn't. And I sure enough, I looked and I'm like a notch above him on the on the open powerlifting. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is like those things still keep me in awe. Now, it didn't stop me. I didn't say, OK, I've arrived. But to to then think, OK, one of the lifters that I continue to look up to and strive to be like, I might be out totaling him now, but we're still chasing each other. You know, it is still it's you know, I've there's guys uh, like. You know, I won't, well, I won't mention names just because I don't want to put anybody down. Because obviously, these anybody with a two or two thousand total, I mean, we're talking elite, I mean, 1900, 1800, still really good numbers. But there's there's guys that I've passed up on that list a couple years ago, and I still look up to them. And the only thing, well, actually, I don't know if they have any lifts that are actually above what I lift now, but when I see them on Instagram or I see them on social media, I still go, man, that guy, I got to get like him. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny how that works. But when you mentioned Rob Philippus, you know, um, that was just that, that came to mind thinking, you know, the, the humility that you have to have, I think, to stay successful and to know that you still aren't, you still, you, you never arrive, I think is the point of the whole, yeah. the, this tangent is if you feel like you've arrived, you probably need to do something else. Wow. So, yeah, no, that's good. And, and I mean, I was chatting, uh, you know, the guy who's coaching right now, his name is Larry McEwen. Uh, and, you know, I was chatting with him and I said that same thing. I was like, you know, sometimes we say don't set long-term goals in powerlifting because then once you hit them, what's next? You know, if you, if you get to that point, you're like, man, yeah, I made it. Okay. Congratulations. I benched 600 or congratulations. I squatted 800. Well, then what happens then? You just stop. No, you're going to keep going. And so I think that's huge and saying, yeah, you've never ar- arrived. You know, there's always something more. There's always a next step. The journey continues, you know? Yeah. Um, well, so one of my biggest questions, you know, I remember, uh, you know, I keep coming back to the Arnold here, uh, the animal cage. You know, we talk competition, but I mean, I think even beyond competition, the intensity around the animal cage is incredible. Uh, to be in that little compact space lifting, I would imagine is quite the experience. I wonder just from being on the lifter side of things, what was that like to, to be able to be in a bench competition like that right within there, hearing the crowd yelling your name? So the animal cage, 
is very unique. I mean, it, there's uh, there's nothing like it. I mean, they even this year we tried to recreate it a little bit with the Arnold being canceled and a few lifters still going up to Columbus and kind of getting a lift on at uh, the Pinnacle Gym, but it it wasn't the same. Now it was different, but the cage itself. The only way I can explain it is you take the excitement of a powerlifting meet as a powerlifter, and you you know there's that that one time when you get to be on stage. You know, you get to show the world what you've been working for. But the difference between a powerlifting meet and the cage is that you don't have limits. You can do what you want to do, and you're free to do as many reps as you want to do, to take as many attempts as you want, to go backwards, to go forwards, to rest, to jump up and down, and, and to show off. I mean, the judges aren't going to—they're not going to be there to tell you you can't take your shirt off, or you can't throw to the crowd, or you can't shake hands in the middle of your lift. I mean, so. The way that I look at the cage is it is a way to, I mean, every it's, it's surreal. I I try to take my kids there every year because I want them to see and to feel that excitement, you know, and it's, it's, it's not about me. It's very much not about me because when I, when I'm in the cage, it's really just soaking in the energy that is just around you. And it's from the lifters, the other lifters, it's from the fans. It's from the, just the, the Arnold itself just has a little bit of an awe around it. And everybody tends to, and I didn't know this until recently until, you know, being in the cage, but most people go to the Arnold, they know what the cage is and they they make their way over there at least once or twice or more throughout the weekend, regardless of what they've got going on, because they know that something special is going to be there, no matter what, what you're watching. But it's humbling to be in there with the best of the best. I mean, Mm -hmm. you just, you take a handful of people all around the world and each day they're in the cage. And there's three days like that. It's nonstop, just mayhem and excitement and PRs and just craziness. And it's almost kind of like, you know, I'm not really a party guy or like a out of control, you know, um, I've done, I mean, back when I was a teenager and, you know, in my Navy days, of course, I went out and partied, I, not as hard as some people do, but I know that feeling. And I think that, that, that um, high, if you will, that they're chasing, mm-hmm. not a drug high, but the high of just the excitement that they're chasing, I think as an adult in a responsible way, and you're a lifter that's what you're going to get at the animal cage. And if you're not a lifter, you'll get it as a fan. And it's just a way to harness all of that energy and to do something that a lot of times has never been done before. Um, And it's just, you know, taking it from the perspective of like a gym lifter is if you are just a regular gym lifter, you, you really never see anybody doing world-class lifting in front of you. Because you don't, you know, you don't follow powerlifting or you might follow strength or you see it online, but there's a big difference between seeing a thousand pound deadlift in person and seeing it online. It's just, you feel it when you're there and you believe it because online you go, ah, that could be fake plates. Eh, that could be an old recording. Who knows? He's using special equipment, but when you see it for your eyes with your eyes, it makes it very much real. And then of course, if you're able to talk to the person and they're a nice guy, I think it really inspires people to be better mm-hmm. versions of themselves, not just with lifting, but it makes them see something that they wouldn't normally believe. And I think that sparks the inner part of, of a lot of people to just go, you know, maybe I can do whatever that particular thing was that I'm 
contemplating doing, but I, I'm scared to do because I think it's too much, you know, work or I don't, I'm not good enough, you know, so, and you'll, you'll hear me going back and forth with philosophical type reasoning with my lifting, because you'll find that lifting is just a small fraction of what I do. And I just, I'm good at it because I know how to tap into the philosophical reasons why I lift. And that's kind of what drives the whole engine of my lifting. And, you know, of course, appreciating having the ability to do what I do and knowing that it can be taken away at any moment and, and making sure that I smartly use it. But seeing that, you know, in, in backing it to the cage, I think that is a real world example of how people can be inspired in person with things that normally are just to them. It's impossible to do. And they, they see something, it's like magic. And they're just like, my goodness, how is this even possible that this person is doing this type of stuff right in front of me? But they have to believe it because it's happening right in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. And and I think kind of you tapped into it a little bit there. Like, I wonder, you know, as you chat, you know, philosophical side of things. I mean, you, I know you say you're a powerlifting hobbyist because, of course, you do a million other things. We all <laughs> do um, that. I wonder if you tried a little bit about what, what does your training environment look like? I mean, you know, you've got these people who, you know, have to be like getting slapped in the face. You know, you, you see it on KK's like head getting like rocked back and forth, you know, <laughs> of the intensity. But then on the other side, you get the people who it almost seems like they could be listening to Beethoven and then go pull a thousand. And so I wonder what does that look like for you, for you to really get into that mental zone of just pure clarity before especially before you get into a bench press so for me most of the time and if if you know anybody listening has followed me for some time or they see my my recaps and they see how i am in my training because i pretty much put everything out there um but even in meets occasionally you'll see at least on the 2.0 version of swim hack <laughs> the last three years or so i am a very calm collected lifter i don't get really amped up um in in terms of i don't need to be slapped around or yelled at uh you know and you're not gonna see me rubbing chalk on my face and spitting out stuff and you know screaming before a lift now during the lift there might be some grunting and groaning and something like that you know depending on what's going on because we're talking a lot of weight a lot of time but after the lift there's a huge celebration typically uh and that's kind of like all of those emotions all those just everything that was pent up before the lift is released and whatever else i have left if anything but i'm not opposed to the occasional fired up pre-lift now it just depends on what's going on now if i if i'm doubting myself or i'm confused or i'm i'm somehow you know not uh in the zone it, it, it happened, you know, a couple of days ago. Just with everything that's going on right now in the world, I'm 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 basically very stressed out, and I know my stress levels affect my lifting and my progress, and it can be very drastic. I mean, it could be a hundred pound weight difference from one lift to another if my stress levels are high, and it's you know I don't think of that as a weakness. I just definitely think that that's a way that I know mentally my CNS, my nervous system, and everything like that is being affected by stress. And it's just the same as if I lifted the day before on a max effort and tried to bench, you know, heavy the next day, I'm, I'm going to be fried out. Um, mm -hmm. But most of the time I'm very calm and collected. Um, my bench days, I typically listen to a little more rock or heavy 
um, heavy music in my headphones uh, on deadlift days, I can be known to listen to some pretty like either not necessarily classical. I don't mind classical. It's more of a if I'm relaxing kind of thing. But I'll listen to 80s, you know, soft rock, Enigma, old Madonna. I mean, I'm talking like stuff that you normally don't relate to powerlifters. And you're like, like Phil Collins, you know, just not, not the real Rocky Phil. I like all Phil Collins, but the, the slower love song type stuff. And I'll pull, you know, I pulled 800 the other day listening to, um, I want to say it was live to tell by Madonna. And I tell wow. that to people. And it's funny. Cause you'll see these hardcore powerlifters bearded out, you know, that hardcore look with nose rings and just piercings everywhere, tattoos everywhere going, are you a sissy for listening to that? It's like, well, I pulled 800. What do you call that? I mean, you know, so it is what it is. But, you know, if you go back to even my earliest days, I didn't know really what worked for me. And so I would scream and yell and and throw a fit and just do whatever. And I'm not saying that in a way that's degrading to people that do that. And that's how they get ready for the lip. Whatever you got to do, do it. Whatever works, keep doing it. But I found that I was doing this for a, it was a deadlift probably a, about um, three and a half years ago or three years ago. I had six fifty for a triple that I was or for a double that I was supposed to do three uh, two and a half three weeks out from a meet that I was looking to go seven hundred and I was that was a PR at, well six sixty I want to say it was my PR at the time for deadlift. I wanted to finally break through seven hundred. And I was doing a deadlift only meet, so I didn't have to do squat and bench or anything like that before. Uh, and I and actually it was at a home gym, uh, not a home gym, but my my home base gym, if you will. And um, mm-hmm. I was training for it. I had six thirty by two the week before, pretty much got it. Uh, the six fifty for two, I had to. I was jumping up and down and screaming and throwing chalk everywhere and just yelling trying to pull it and I couldn't even break it off the ground. I was like, what is going on here? Like, I can't seem to figure out why I can't pull this. Like I, did I lose that much strength in one week? And I tried it like three times and each time it got worse. And I finally just pissed off myself, walked around the, the block with my headphones on. It was pretty, you know, probably about the, you know, acre worth of space. And I just left the gym and everybody in there was like, dude, it's okay. You know, I couldn't hear that because the video was rolling in the background, but um, I left the gym and I was just mad and I walked around and it was pretty hot day, but I got around the uh, the other side of the gym on the backside and was walking through like the shadow um, and the sun was going down on the other side. And all of a sudden, I I don't know what song it was, but it was probably just a pretty like an old eighties inspirational song or something. And it just came on and I got chills. Because I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to pull 700 if I can't even get 650? Not only for a double, but I couldn't even get it up for a single. So I'm doubting myself, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, maybe this, maybe this powerlifting thing is just not working for me. You know, maybe I just, maybe I'm not as strong as I think I'm supposed to be, or whatever I thought. And maybe the people that are saying that I can't do it are right. Maybe I'm just not going to make it, and I, my goal of 700 is, is just not going to happen. We're talking deadlift, and um. I walk around and as soon as I hit the sunlight on the other side of the building, it's like when that music started and I, I just got chills and I went, okay, are we going to do this? Or are we going to walk home? Like, are we going to be done for the day? Like we got mm-hmm. a choice here. We're going to give it one more shot and give it every freaking thing we have, or are we going to just, you know, punk out? And so I had another maybe five minute walk back to the, to the door. And I was, I was, I made up my mind. 
I'm going to pull this and I'm going to put everything into this. And, I, and even, even if it's just for one, I'm just going to yank it off the floor and I'm going to be done with it. And I walked in and I was like, instead of getting all mad and everything, I'm just going to calmly walk in, put chalk up, put my belt on, and I'm going to pull this off the floor. And that's exactly what happened. I, I walk in, they're yelling at me. I don't know what they're saying. Jeff Yonkers actually one of my training partner that I was telling you about that one boss of bosses. He was like, just give it up, man. You're fine. It's okay. You're, you'll be fine. Don't hurt yourself. I couldn't hear him because I had my head, headphones blaring, you know, 80s music, whatever. And I walked over to the bar, got my belt on, got chalked up. I grabbed the bar and just calmly went through the motions of getting tight, getting down, and executing the lift. And it flew up. And I just – I mm. had these chills that just – I got – something came over me, and I was just like tapped into something different that I'd never been tapped into before – and I put it down slowly and I yanked it up for two more. And then I dropped it on the third one in, in sheer like celebration. Like that's what I'm talking about. And you can see, I have it on an old, I'll send it to you later, but it's on an old YouTube video and you can hear somebody in the background go something like you crazy effort or something like couldn't believe that I had failed three times and then just pulled it with ease for three more reps after I had failed and it's at that moment that things changed for me. I just, I realized that I'm, I'm always going to have doubts. You know, you're always going to miss something eventually. You're going to miss a lift or miss, have a bad day or something's going to happen. But it's, it taught me, you know, one, to be patient and just to, to do the lift and to, to rely on what your training has brought you to at this point. If, if your training hasn't brought you to a certain point, then you're not going to do it even if you tell yourself you can. I mean, it's just you physically have to be able to lift something. Your mind's not going to be able to do it for you. But you also have to be able to physically, you know, you have to mentally be able to overcome the barrier that your mind is also trying to set and allow your body to do what you've been training it to do. And so those two things came together at a head. And I didn't pull 700 at the meet, but I pulled I, – I got it up to my knees, and it just kind of freaked me out. It wasn't for another – probably six months, but after I pulled 700, it was like 700, 725, 771. I mean, it just went up from there. But that lesson that in that training day taught me that's what, that's the type of lifter I am, or at least at this moment, I'm a calm, collected, rely on your training. And it's, you know, you hear people say that in all walks of life, you know, and different things. And, you know, if you, if you train the right way, you can fall back on that. Like you can actually, if you're training it the right way, you can say, okay, well, I did this last week. There's no reason I shouldn't be able to just inch it up a little bit this week. And if I don't, it's, it's not the end of the world, but you don't just completely throw it out the window and go, okay, I'm done because there's no way I can get to this next level. You just take a break and you, you know, maybe one or two steps back and then you take it forward again. And, um, but that whole concept of just being calm and collected has worked very well for me because I reserve a lot of precious energy to direct into the barbell versus celebrating kind of early. And it's, it's saved me quite a bit, you know, as far as, you know, being able to get through long meat days and having energy to, to lift the next time and not injure myself because a lot of the injuries occur when you're, already fatigued and you're trying to push your body further than it wants to go past the breaking point and then you get hurt and so i think that it, i attribute that quite a bit to me being able to stay in control and, and feel what's going on in my body and to stay injury free but to still pass up some pretty good milestones 
Yeah. Wow. There's so much good stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all, we've all been in that place where, you know, it's a weight where, you know, you should be able to do it, but for whatever reason, it's just, it's not going to come off the floor. And I think that that picture of you going out of the gym and refocusing is so huge for people because honestly, that's what it takes. You know, I think people can look at weight training, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, even top level CrossFit athletes, you know, they think it's just physical that of course they're like, Oh, he's big. Like he just needs to lift go in and do it. But there is just so much mental battle that's really going on there because, you know, Captain Kirk's whole phrase, don't mess up for 20 seconds. That if you, if you get under 650 pounds over your head and you think for a moment, man, I don't know if I'm going to get this. You're you're not going to get it. You know, of, of getting into that mental zone, I think is so important. That's just such a good image. Well, and to take that even further, since you've given me a platform and I definitely appreciate it. So I know that most people are, for one, don't even think that they could ever bench 600 or more. And so they won't even try it. So I, I realize that. And then we're talking, you know, benching, but, you know, squatting 700 uh, to deadlift 800 or deadlift 700, whatever the number is, there's a number that most people have in their head that they're like that that's just not even for me now that's okay i mean that strength doesn't measure like just because you can do a certain number doesn't make you who you are that's clear cut right now but i get that we all need something to keep us going we all want to to strive to be better at something and a lot of us choose strength sports and so for this example you know i'll take you know, you'll say a guy that's doing 225 in the gym and they just they just hit 225 they're so excited and they look over and they see somebody benching four four oh five and they're just like, Man, am I I don't know if I could ever get to that level. You know, it's that shouldn't even be on their radar. It now they can think it, they can pipe dream. You know, there's nothing wrong with a long term goal and kind of th- keep keeping that in in you know wraps, but I never did that. I never looked past fifty to hundred pounds of where I'm at now. And it makes it so much more manageable because I think most people could add 20 pounds to whatever the lift is in a relatively short amount of time, meaning uh, maybe a year. Now, because I say a short amount of time, but a year can go by really fast if you're training the right way. I mean, I put my head down for the last, well, since August, and I thought, man, I got 20 weeks until my next meet, roughly, because that's normally how long I train. And um, now it's been canceled, but that's another story. But from that time, you know, from boss of bosses until now has gone very fast. Yeah. Like I've had other things going on in my life that has kept me busy and, you know, six months just went by in a blip. I got a lot of training done in that amount of time and a lot of things have changed. I've gotten a lot stronger. I can tell you one thing now bench, you know, we're talking adding, you know, inches to an already, you know, big bench, uh, which I, 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 of all people understand we're talking a tall order. You know, I I think at this point, 700 is definitely within reach um, if everything falls into place, but to go 750 or to 800, something like that, that's not even something I've even considered because it's one thing at a time. But I know that the training that I've done, this training cycle has set me up for success. Had I wanted to do a meet in, in April, we would see some big things coming out. And the other thing is I use that same principle for my squat and deadlift. If, if I can stay injury-free, which I always say that just because I'm a little bit superstitious, and um, I've got a pretty good track record, but I want to keep it that way. 
but if everything stays on track and you know meat start to get the world gets to you know get back to normal i think we're going to see some pretty hefty numbers even more so with squat and deadlift because of my bench training and my back work that i've done in the last 20 weeks and just kind of keeping my head down and, and working on some, some sticking points and things like that. It's all going, it's all coming together and helping, you know, complement each other uh, as far as the other lifts. But with in that, in, in relation to kind of how I was talking about most people that can relate or, or most people cannot relate to elite level numbers, but they can relate to something that's closer to them. So, you know, like the 225 guy, trying to get to, you know, 315, let's say. That's normally the next milestone. I would normally say go you know, 25, 30-pound jumps, but they normally, as soon as they hit two plates, they want to look at three. Well, look at it in terms of, okay, adding, you know, just five pounds a week for the next 10, 12, 13 weeks. I mean, you're, you're adding 25 pounds, I mean, you're, or, you know, over a few weeks' time, and if you're training correctly and you're not hurting yourself and you're doing, you know, good technique, I don't see why everybody can't improve on their own uh, level and, and get to the next level. And then it's just a matter of moving up the next level and then the next level. And, you know, over time, and most people I think would have five years of good training. You never know where you're going to be at. Mm. And to, to bring it full circle, when I first started lifting, bench was always been just that oddball. I think everybody's got that one lift that's a little bit out there that's a little bit better than the rest. They just feel more comfortable with. For most people, it's not bench. For me, it just happened to be bench. But if, if you um, hone in on those particular weaknesses and, and make them better, they're going to become strengths. And so to, to make my lifting, you know, maybe inspirational, and that's very humbling, but to make it more of a pill that most people can swallow, that's kind of where I really strive on pushing my motivation because I remember being that guy who at my first meet squatted 225 and seeing guys squatting six and 700 and going, yeah, that's probably never going to happen. You know, you have to, you have to be able to mentally check into it first. And instead of swallowing the pill of, Oh, I'll go 600 on squat. It was, let me just try to get 315. Let me just try to get 405. Let me just, Oh my goodness. I went from 405 to 500 in, in no time because I started training correctly then things you get excited about the lift and things get a little bit easier after that point, but it makes it accessible for most people to reach success. Yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of good information there. And I think what, what some people may, may even know about you, you're kind of the anomaly in that you were a swimmer uh, and you went from swimming into becoming an elite level power lifter. How did that play into it? Obviously your time in the Navy, how did that all play into it? So I swam, well, let's just, I'll back up even a little bit further. So, uh, well, actually I'll take it way back for you here and we'll, we'll, we'll round it out full circle on, on how swimming got into powerlifting. So when I, I grew up without a dad, um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that it was, I didn't have a horrible life. My mom gave, you know, gave me everything that I needed, you know, single mom working full time, um, not a very good disciplinarian and that is not a dig at her at all. She is a wonderful mom, but she's a mom. Like I, I don't think most moms want to discipline their kids. It's kind of the dad role, you know, and, and it's more natural. I think for the males to, yeah, I don't want to say aggressively, but that aggressive trait that men typically have that testosterone helps us to be disciplinarian right. and, and kind of let it, you know, we don't get emotional 
as much. Now, I'm not saying that's just kind of a, 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 a broad uh, assumption here, but I can, you know, punish my kids lovingly and walk away from it and not think twice about it. And right. then boom, everything's fine. Mom, on the other hand, disciplining, it's a little more emotionally tied. She's a little bit more upset about it later. And she's like, I don't know if I did the right thing. And, you know, it's just, I think it's just a, a feministic, or a, a, you know, a feminine trait. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are probably going to go against me on that, but I, that's my observation. That's my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but so growing up lovingly, loving, my loving mom would come home and I would be, you know, bad at school. Let's just put it that way. I just, yeah. I had discipline problems, um, very bright, didn't really enjoy school because I, I was always kind of ahead of the class and I had time on my hands to goof off. Right. And I wasn't going to be told no. I mean, it, I don't care who you were. I was going to disrespect you. And it, I didn't have that father figure to go, look, that is wrong. You're not going to do that. You're not going to disrespect your teachers. You're not going to disrespect other people. You will follow the rules. And so I was kind of left to my own vices to just kind of in the wind a little bit where you know, I'd get in trouble, I'd get sent home and I enjoyed it because I'm like, hey, I don't have to go at sc- be at school and I'm suspended, you know, or whatever. And then I'd go back and I'd do it for a little bit more attention, you know, for the class or whatever and just kind of be the class clown. And um, I never was athletically inclined and I played a little bit of football my sixth and seventh or seventh and eighth grade year. And it wasn't for me. I just didn't enjoy football. I just thought it was too um, – I, I liked it. You know, I use the word – like anti-jock. I just wasn't a jock. I didn't want the fame. I didn't want the popularity. I just wanted people to leave me the hell alone. Because for the most part, I just wanted to be a kid. I didn't want yeah. to be the superstar. Um, and I still don't really crave that at all. I mean, who doesn't like attention? But at that age, it was a different type of attention I was craving. I didn't want to work out and try to achieve greatness in order to get attention. You know, a lot of the guys that were playing football then and still may, may be, I just saw them as kind of different. And so I just, I didn't get along with them. And so I, I played a little bit of football here and there and, and I was pretty good. I just, I think it was more because if you gave me a challenge, I was going to be as good as I possibly could at it, but it just wasn't for me. I got kicked off the team a couple of times and then they call me back and I'm just like, okay, you know what? This is not for me. And they wanted me to be a practice at certain times. I'm like, dude, you want me to be responsible? Like I'm what? 10. No, I was a 10. Let's see. I was 12 years old, 13 years old. I'm like, yeah, I, I do what I want. And so that wasn't really working for me. So I, I was actually in, and I'll go through this part pretty quick, but I was put in special ed due to behavior problems it wasn't necessarily and this is not a dig at anybody that's in special ed for any other you know you know behavior uh, stuff but there's i back in the day they didn't group them in terms of learning disabilities or physical disabilities i mean if you had any type of thing that would keep you from being in a mainstream class you were put in the same special ed department so it, it, it taught me a lot one is I'm, you know, I wasn't dumb and I, and, you know, I, I just wasn't, um, I didn't know how to act, you know, I didn't have that disciplinary in my life. And so I went through a couple of years of being in special ed and being made fun of from the other kids because I rode the small bus. I mean, when people make jokes about it and I make jokes about it too, but it's not making, it's, it's more of, I'm able to, I'm fun loving and I can make a joke about it, but I would never purposely say, okay, this person <laughs> handicapped or disabled i'm making fun of them for riding a small bus but i rode the small bus and so i know what it feels like um but 
I went through that and it, it, it actually leveled me out a little bit because I realized that I put myself in that situation. The school system, you know, did, but I made the choices that made put me there. Well, I got an opportunity when I was a freshman in high school. So it took me sixth grade or sixth grade, seventh grade year and eighth grade or seventh, eighth and a little bit of ninth grade in special ed classes. So I couldn't excel with GPAs or any, you know, math, you know, taking special electives and all that stuff. I never got to see all that type of stuff until I was in high school. And so I missed out on a lot, but it was due to my own, uh, you know, choices. And I learned the opposite of peer pressure, kind of the, the, it was a good way, you know, people were making fun of me and I'm like, okay, I don't want to be made fun of anymore. I want to be better. I want to be, I don't want to be popular, but I don't want to be made fun of. And so, um, my special ed class that I was in actually had um, PE designated like twice a week. We had to go to you know do something in a phys- physical ed department, but we were not with the regular high school. We were kind of in our own little area. One day they said, okay, you know, it's, it's raining outside, so we're not going to be able to go like play football or dodgeball, whatever we're going to do in, in the open field. We're actually going to go over to the natatorium and swim. And I thought, okay, that's kind of cool. You know, I, I've never really done that before. And they said, you know, you got to bring a swimsuit on this day. So we did. Well, I get in and, and they say, okay, you know, everybody wants to go jump on the diving board. Well, before you could go jump on the diving board, you had to swim eight laps, which is a 200, 200 yards. Right. I had no idea what it was. I, you know, I didn't even have goggles or anything. And, you know, long story short, I swam that faster than anybody just as a natural ability and, and of course, now I'm sure compared to what I can do now, it was probably silly, but it beat everybody else at the time. And I was only one over in the diving well for about 20 minutes while everybody was finishing up swimming because they, they couldn't swim. They just they couldn't, you know, it, they look like a fish out of water. Right. Well, the swim coach of the high school noticed me and he goes, who's this kid? Because he's actually got a natural talent. You you're telling me he doesn't ever swim. I mean, that's that's crazy. And so I talked to him and he goes, well, you know, I'd like to have you on the swim team if you'd like to try out. And of course I was that smart ass little kid that was like, Oh, I'm not wearing a speedo. I know about these swimmers and you know, I'm not doing this. He goes, I tell you what, he goes, I bet you that you can't beat. I'll pick a girl and I bet you can't beat her. And if you lose, you have to try out for the swim team. And I went, uh, okay, that's, and I was just, you know, no, no respect. And I was like, fine, if she beats me, then I'll do it. Not knowing what I'm getting myself into. Um, her name was Lori Roth. I'm still friends with her on Facebook. She was a junior. I was a freshman. She beat me in a, in just a, a 50, which is there and back, like just, you know, t- uh, basically 50 yards and smoked me like I was standing still. And I was so embarrassed. And I'm like, okay, that's not fair. You know, this, that, the other, she jump started me, all these excuses, but I had to stay true to my word. You know, I was at least conscious that I told him that I would try out. Um, come to find out, she was a junior national qualifier at the time, one of the, the best in the, in the nation. <laughs> but that's not, I mean, not talking down on her. She's really, I mean, I think her, her time, her 50 time was like 25 at the time. Uh, I think she went on to do like 23, which for a female is fast. I mean, that's really fast. Uh, I think I might've swam like a 27 or 28 at the time, which is for a 50. 
Um, I went on, you know, long story short, I went on to try out for the team. The coach said, well, maybe you should try diving. I, I thought you would be able to handle practices. He goes, I don't know. Your work ethic sucks. You're, you're not ever on time. Maybe diving is for you. So I tried out for the dive team and, and did okay. And the dive you know, coach was like, maybe you should go back to swimming. You know, Maybe you're not cut out for this diving thing. Because we were getting to the point where you had to do not only a flip, which was fun, but then you had to do um, – I forgot what they called Not a gainer, but – it was basically where you put one arm behind you, one arm in front, and you would actually twist horizontally after you'd flip. And every time I just smacked the water and the dive team was just laughing at me. They're like, okay, this guy doesn't know how he doesn't know what he's doing. You know? And of course I'm sure if I worked at it harder, I could have been something, but mind you, I did not have a work ethic at the time. So I was willing to just give it up. Um, and I didn't have anybody support system wise to really know what I was doing to go, Hey, I think you need to work harder at this. You know, later on, my mom really kind of got behind the swimming and that really took off. But, you know, I, I went back to swimming. The coach said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll work with you every day, you know, get you where you need to be. So, you, you know, it, he basically just took me under his wing and he gave me somebody to chase. Around that same time, you know, I have a, a mentor that from the Big Brothers and Sisters program in, in Houston, it's like basically um, – it's a volunteer program where, you know, men and women can volunteer their time on the weekends or whenever they have time to, to just take you places, you know, or to hang out with you, talk to you, you know, just be a mentor. Um, and I had one of those from the time I was eight until, well, until I was 18, but I didn't really utilize them that much until I started, I you know, turned 14. I was in a freshman year of high school, but that's when the swimming started out. So he took an interest in that. My mom took an interest in that and the coach took an interest. So I had a support system around swimming. And so next thing I know, I'm swimming like every day. I've got something to keep me busy. I'm staying out of trouble. I finally, I, I get into normal classes, if you will. I'm able to work on my grades. And, and that's where my life literally just went from. I could have been a criminal and been the best at it because I would have been a darn good criminal. I tell you, whatever I do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strive to be the best at. And I, I say that because I could have easily ended up in the prison system. I could have. I mean, I, there's a lot of things that I did when I was a kid that, you know, I'd burn up people's grass in their yards. I mean, I was I was pretty bad. Like I wasn't like evil, but. I could have very easily gone down that path had I had the wrong influence. And thank God I didn't have a lot of negative influences because I probably would have just attached onto that and went down that road. It would have been very hard to get back. But, um, you know, with, with the support system there, swimming ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. I was like most improved freshman. Uh, I went on to state and nationals and it just blew up for the next four years. I became like the star swimmer. Uh, one of the fastest that had ever come out of that school, out of the state, uh, made a lot of friends. Um, and then I continue, you know, I went, went to the military, um, continued to swim quite a bit because that was my, it'd be like powerlifting now, I, even though we're not really allowed to go to gyms, I figured out a way to get a home gym so I can keep working out. It's, it's to keep my sanity. So at the time swimming was that, you know, even though I was traveling the world and doing certain things. I still found the time to put on a swimsuit and swim a few laps every single week or so just to, to smell the chlorine, honestly, just because it took me, you know, to a different level. I could you know, release a lot of stress that way. And by doing it so much, 
I continued to get better. And so when I got out of the military, I went back to swimming and made nationals again, traveled a little bit with nationals and masters and things like that. Um, you know, it, it became a hindrance though, because you don't get paid for swimming unless you're like the top guy in the world. Um, and even then it's not like you're really making a salary, but unless you're Phelps, <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, it, I was training four and five hours a day, not including my commute to the pool and from the pool. And I'd get home at like nine o'clock at night and, uh, 2006, uh, we had our first baby. Uh, and so I started feeling really guilty that I was spending a lot of time away from, you know, building a business and swimming and not having really any of the show other than medals occasionally. I mean, it was great for, I stayed in shape. I looked great. You know, I felt great, but my, my balance in my life was really getting skewed. And so I made a promise to my wife. I was like, all right, I'm going to do one more meet and then I'm done. And this was around 2005 actually. Um, and then I swam a little bit because I, you know, I, I stopped swimming officially in 2005. <laughs> I started gaining weight and I went, okay, I need to go back to swimming just for a few months to, to lose weight, get my diet in order. And that's kind of when I officially stopped around 2008 or so. But, um, I found out that, you know, I was still going to gain weight. I was still going to put on some weight because I was so used to eating 10, 15,000 calories a day. I mean, we're no joke. I was 180 pounds and I would eat every thing that I could pot whole pizzas on the regular, um, you know, five and six cheeseburgers on a day, you know, fries, shakes. I mean, a lot of bad stuff, but just calories because I could burn it off in the pool. I mean, I was burning through calories like they were nothing. But when I stopped swimming, it was very easy to, to keep eating like that because my lifestyle had allowed it. And when I got hungry, I, I felt like I needed to eat a whole pizza and I would gain weight, you know, very quickly. So I thought, okay, I can't keep going back to swimming. Maybe if I go to the weight room and just get some arms and, you know, put a little bit of muscle on, I won't look so bad if I have a little bit of a belly. And so that's kind of what started me down the road of strength sports. And it wasn't until a few years later when I started realizing I'm actually pretty good at this and it's kind of coming natural that I started going, well, it only takes me a couple hours a day to get strong. I can do that. You know, if I, if I lived in an apartment at the time with the wife and, and our first baby, it, I could, I could go downstairs You know, I work from home. So during the middle of the day, I could take a couple hours, go and train some weights, get a little stronger and have something to do as far as, you know, chasing a new goal. And it didn't take five hours out of my day. I didn't feel guilty. And um, that just blew up. And next thing I know, you know, I went from like a 300 bench uh, when I stopped swimming to a 405 bench in probably less than a year. And then I went from like 450 or 405 to 455 to 500 in probably the next two years. And then I realized this is something different. Like I, I everybody around me was like, OK, you're like a bench press phenom like this is not normal. <laughs> the strongest people I know in the world to them, you know, in their own world don't do what you're doing. And then right. one guy saw me, I actually started, you know, really getting into the, like the 500s, 605 pound bench. And I put it on YouTube and somebody commented and go, they basically said, well, it wasn't paused. You didn't lock it out. You had a heavy spot and it was like, uh, you know, it was a bro lift, but if you paused it, you might get 650 in a meet. And even if you did that, or I'm sorry, you might get 550 in a meet, but if you did that in your weight class, it would probably be close to a world record. And I went, 
like an actual Guinness world record? I mean, what are you talking about? Like this is a world for me? Like how would I get a world record? I'm just a, right. I'm just a gym lifter. I started researching it and that was about the time that I started looking at videos of other people benching. I found Jeremy Hornstra. I was looking at old videos of um, uh, Andy. I'm trying to remember his, he was a he's bodybuilder, but Andy something. He did like four or five for 20. Uh, Andy Bolton, um, some of the Ed, Ed Cohn videos, animal cage videos. And I started seeing a whole nother niche of sports that I didn't even know existed. I thought powerlifters were just big, fat, overweight guys that couldn't do anything else. And that's, they chose to live. Right. And I, I realized there was weight classes and I was like, this is kind of interesting. Now I didn't really have any, you know, I, I didn't have any motivation to go and do it. I just thought, okay, this is cool that I'm lifting as much as some of these guys, if not more. And th this is their profession. I'm like, that's kind of cool. It wasn't until somebody uh, at, kind of at, near the gym that I was lifting at says, Hey, we're going to, I took some time off after I've been set 600 because I was like, what's next. I'm, like, I'm not going to try for 700. That's, that's crazy talk. Why would I even think about that? And so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm 200 and I don't know, 75 pounds. I'm going to lose some weight. I went back to swimming. Um, and this was 2012 when I did the 605 pound bench, went back to swimming just for, you know, an hour a morning for about six months, just to lose a little bit of weight. Cause I, I didn't know how to lose muscle. <laughs> I needed, you have to literally stop going to the gym for about six months and do some sort of cardio consistently and you have to decrease your diet in order to lose lean muscle either that or you have to get like sick <laughs> and i leaned out from 270 to 235 the leanest meanest i've ever looked because i mean you're you're stripped down and shredded and so i look like a bodybuilder at about 230 pounds and i felt good you know i felt you know fine and i had no reason to go back to strength sports i had just i felt like i had arrived and i kind of tapped out that potential and i didn't really care to do it and thought okay i'm just gonna you know maybe swim occasionally and just be a dad that's that's my life now and um all of a sudden the the gym group that i was lifting with at the time it was probably about 10 of us just we had a central trainer that would train with us um and we would go in and train whenever we had time. And occasionally I would lift with the same lifters over and over again. And just, you know, kind of a motivational type thing. It's uh, just a gym group. But um, they said, hey, you know, on this Facebook group, we're going to start a powerlifting team and do a powerlifting meet. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. But I, I hadn't talked to these guys in person in months. So I saw this and I went, you know, that might be something kind of cool. Yeah. And I, and I just accepted it, like said, I'm going to this event. And so many people commented and they were like, James, we haven't seen you in like six months. You're, you're seriously going to do this event. I'm like, so now you're challenging me. <laughs> so I started training for a meet that was supposed to, I, I got the invite in like June. It was supposed to be in October. The, it was the Gary Pendergrass invitational. It wasn't called that initially because the gentleman who they named it after was actually alive and I think it was supposed to be one of the judges. So it was like the Texas Orange County, you know, powerlifting open or something. Well, he died shortly before the meet. So the meet got canceled and postponed until December. Well, by October, I was ready to go. I was like, man, I'm going to get, you know, 600 bench because it's in my head that I'm, I've done it in a YouTube video. So all of a sudden I can bench that in an actual powerlifting meet. Now, I might have been right. training in the 500s by this point. And um, it gave me like two more months to actually train for everything. I thought, okay, 
I'm going to do squat and deadlift as, as well. Not ever, ever having really squatted or deadlifted in my life. Um, went in, you know, fast forward to the meet. It was December 6, 2014. And went in, did a 225 squat, like on a second attempt. My third attempt was like 315. Stapled me to the floor. Couldn't even get up. Uh, went on to bench. Opened at 474. Went on to 520 as a second. And could not you know, get it past the sticking point, took it on a third, bailed on that one. So I only got the opener at 474, which was still good for a state record for Texas. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I got a record. I was shooting for like 585, honestly, because I wanted to take like a national record for the APF and then went on to deadlift. And I, I pulled like 225 as an opener, 335, I think, on a second. And then I missed 405 on a third. So that was my total. It was like less than it was like thousand seventy or something, and um, that was my first powerlifting meet. So, what I would say, and this, you know, that's a what I would say are humble beginnings because it it was not what I thought it was going to get. And you know, it's not a, a gym lift to a legitimate lift as easy as that. It took me two years of actually three. I want to say it was two and a half, two and a, two and a half, three years to train properly to get to a 600 powerlifting level meet or, or lift from a gym lift. And I, I trained differently. It, it, it took me from a different mindset of, okay, I can do this in the gym, but does that mean that I can do it in a meet? It's two totally different things. But as far as the, the crossover from swimming to powerlifting, the reason I was able to excel as fast as I was uh, able to is because when you swim, especially with bench squatting, it did nothing for me. Like squat, swimming had no carryover whatsoever from the waist down. <laughs> that was all just me training the right way and figuring out, you know, kind of things on my own. I got a clear advantage from swimming to, to benching because I used my lats, my triceps, my chest every single day for every single stroke in swimming. Um, and, and the reason my triceps are as strong as they are is because if you think about a tricep push down, you know, rope or bar or whatever, you know, most people do maybe a hundred pounds ish, you know, for two hands. Well, if you're in the pool and you're taking a swim a stroke, like freestyle, you're doing a push down motion multiple times in a lap. Normally, you know, I guess if you thought about it, you know, in terms of, you know, 5,000, 5,000 yards a day in training, you know, maybe a third of that, is actually taking a stroke. I mean, I was doing hundreds, maybe not you know thousands of pushdowns in the pool with body weight. You know, maybe half yeah. of that. But my triceps were bulletproof, so my my joints, my tendons, my ligaments, all the underlying soft tissues were like injury proof, <laughs> if you will. And if I and if I right. poured on slabs of muscle by doing the actual main sets and accessories and things like that for a couple of years on end, as long as I didn't go overboard on those, my tendons and joints were going to hold up. I wasn't going to get injured and have those injuries, those small nagging injuries prevent me from progressing. So I was able to progress and still able to progress at a fast pace and not be held back by injury. And I think, you know, that says a lot with strength sports being, you know, a lot of injuries happen not just from the main muscle tear, but from something underlying that doesn't hold up, that trickles down or trickles up, if you will, 
that actually hurt you. You know, if you're if you're having issues with you know your tricep tendon or whatever, your tricep muscle is going to be uh, vulnerable to a tear. And if you get into a position where you're almost failing a lift and it's re- relying 100% on your tricep to save it, it's pretty much gone. I mean, you, you can pretty much bank that you're going to strain something, if not tear it. Um, so th- the carryover it, it was tremendous. And so I had 15 years of swimming that set me up for an upper body success in powerlifting. So that's, that's kind of, that's exactly how swimming played a huge role uh, in me being able to. And I see that with quite a number of Eddie Hall was a swimmer. Um, Jeremy Hornster was a swimmer. I mean, I know Jeremy's got a 675 bench. Uh, and he's close grip, uses triceps quite a bit. Eddie Hall, I mean, he's got, I, I don't know what the most he's done with bench, but he's hes in the 600s, that's for sure. And just if, even if the, he stopped there, that's enough for me to go. Swimming had a huge role in his upper body strength, uh, shoulder strength, um, you know, tendon, joint, ligament, uh, integrity. It's huge. And, and if you're coming from more of a football background or maybe another strength sport, something where you've been banging up yourself for years, you are at a disadvantage compared to a swimmer because it's low impact. I mean, swimming is just, you're not, unless you mess up your rotator, you're pretty much not going to get injured. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's so interesting as well. You know, you you talk about really how it it bulletproofed your triceps. And of course people who who have seen you bench know you bench with probably one of the longest ranges of motion of anything that you really do have that, that close grip with all that tricep activation. And so I wonder, even with that, I mean, as you look at longevity in lifting, would you, do you think that that close grip is probably more realistic in maintaining a longevity in bench as opposed to something that may be wider and utilizing more of that? that I would definitely say it's worth considering. Um, I don't want to say it's the end all because I I know, you know, there's quite a bit of uh, lifters out there that have had a long career doing wide grip. Uh, I don't know, you know, and I'm sure there's a few, but I don't know of a lot of people that have had a wide grip, uh, what I would call more of a vulnerable setup and not have any type of serious strains or injuries that have prevented them from at least, you know, continuing to make progress without injury. Um, You know, I was just covering that today. Somebody asked me on the live about close grip being, you know, why do I bench with a close grip? Wouldn't it be more advantageous to be at a wide grip? And that's where, for me, absolutely not. I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not even going to go down that road because when I bench wider, it's obviously for a reason. And it's, I did that, um, you know, I started getting too close, almost really, you know, I, I, I believe I missed a lift. Uh, a couple of meets ago based on the fact that I was just too close and I couldn't drive it off the chest with enough stability to keep it going into the triceps. Now, had I gotten to the triceps, I could have held it there all day long. Um, but I saw, I, I watched the lift and I went, man, I, I have gotten so close. It's not even like, it looks silly close. And so I took the next training cycle and purposely went wider and went very wide, like four inches wider than my, my widest grip and went outside the rings and worked my way in slowly as I was able to handle the weight. So that's the key here is I didn't start wide grip in 600. I went 405 for a set of 10 
then I would go 410 for a set of 10 and then 415, maybe a little bit closer. But it allowed me to build my back and my pecs up to where they weren't. When I finally went back to close grip, because eventually I get to the point where the weight is so heavy that I feel like I'm going to tear a pec if I bench wide. Um, I just feel like staying close allows me to keep my shoulders and my pecs safe. And it, it has. I mean, I've gotten myself out of a lot of benches where I, I've, you know, I might strain a pec here and there, but because I'm so close, it's just a minor strain and it goes away in a couple of days. I'm normally back to 100% within a week. But if I was wide, I'm almost certain that I would have probably hurt myself quite a bit more. So I would say if, if somebody's having pec issues, close grip is your friend. I mean, you may not be able to bench. I mean, just like I can't wide grip bench 650 right now without feeling very, very vulnerable and probably not even getting it because I'm so used to doing it close grip. I would never say take your max weight and just all of a sudden change your grip. You've got to back it down. I mean, no matter what you're doing to change up some technique, but if you're having shoulder problems and you're having pec problems or, or vice versa, it's worth a shot to at least do a full, you know, few weeks at a minimum of close grip because you're going to eliminate being vulnerable in the shoulders and being vulnerable in the, in the pecs. And for bench, that's what takes a lot of benchers out of the game is, is a pec tear or something, you know, in that range that is, is preventable, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's huge. And, and I think I've definitely seen that pan out for different people. Uh, you know, I'm about to graduate college here in May, but the team I, that I've been with, uh, you know, we just have a broad spectrum of lift guys who are the super narrow. We have this one guy who did a couple of years ago who, I mean, his arch raw, uh, rivaled Sean Noriega. Uh, that it was, it was okay. a, a two inch little extension. Uh, and so we saw the full spectrum, um, but frequently it was, it was the people with the wider grip that tended to have more injuries. Uh, so it's definitely an interesting case study. Um, one of the other things, you know, I think we see a lot with bench is, is wrist position itself. Um, the, you know, sometimes you get the people, you know, you tend to have more of a straight wrist, but you, then you also have those people who almost as cocked back as Andre Melanichev on a squat, um, that it's, you can see a lot of variance. And I wonder if you can speak into that a little bit where you see that being relevant for different lifters. Well, so, and, and we're talking about like basically wrist um, position, obviously it's stacked um, on the elbow, but you're talking about the actual finger position in relation to the, to the wrist yeah. joint. So I know with me, I typically, I don't know if I've even paid attention to that as much. I mean, I know where I'm at, but I haven't really seen it as being on other lifters. I haven't, I don't know if I've ever really noticed um, if somebody was further back or not. Um, I know that with me, I've got a very big palm in relation to my fingers. So if I were to rotate my wrist forward too much, I'm not going to be able to save it with my fingers. And so I, if I, if I'm wrote, if, if my hand is stacked the way it should, the bar is resting kind of slightly diagonal in my hand. It's not straight across, but if I were to um, rotate 
down towards my feet in any capacity, I'm going to lose the bar because my, my fingers aren't grabbing uh, horizontally. They're more or less just kind of holding onto the bar uh, on top, you know, kind of resting on it. Of course I'm squeezing the hell out of it, but if I was to, you know, rotate forward, the bar, the bar weight itself would just come right out of my grip. Um, But I know as far as the risk stacking, it's advantageous and it, I think it's preferred and that's perfect technique is to have it where the bar is sitting right on that joint. If it's too far in your palm, you're having to work too hard it, with your actual ligaments in your hand to keep the bar in position and you're wasting energy that way. So not to downplay on somebody else's lift, I'm sure there's different reasonings behind it, but for me personally, it's all about energy efficiency uh and i say that somewhat of in a gray area because obviously we could argue the fact that energy efficiency for a close grip bencher with a 23 inch range of motion i could decrease the amount of energy that i'm using by going wider and decreasing the range of motion so there's there's always some gray area there but i think it's that's where you utilize your personal strength and your personal leverages to what works for you honestly, at any given point in time, it doesn't necessarily have to stay that way. Um, you're not going to see lifters typically changing from one lift to the next or one meet or one week to the next. But, you know, there's been times when I'll go a little wider in my training because I feel like I want to stress the pecs a little bit more. But as I start getting closer to one reps, I know where I'm strongest at. And I know if I can fire off correctly and hit all the, all the muscle fibers in order on the way up or on the way down and all the way up, I should have a perfect lift and it shouldn't cost me a lot of energy. And so that, you know, wrapping up the energy talk there, but is that, does that answer your question as far as the, the risk? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great answer. Um, okay. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's good. Uh, we'll kind of switching tracks here a little bit, you know, a, a quick search through your, your Instagram is going to find a, a lot of posts are about sushi and about food and, you know, obviously, you know, to be in a 308 weight class for me, I'm 275 being in these heavier weight classes, the, the caloric consumption is so high. And so wonder just, yeah, what is, what does diet look like for you? Is it really a, uh, I'm going to see something, I'm going to eat it. Is it, uh, what's the structure around that? And where is that really played advantageously into your training? So, I am a connoisseur of food. I love food, any type of food for the most part. There's a couple, you know, um, types of food that I'm just, I'm, I'll stay away from. Uh, obviously, I love Mexican. I love sushi, Chinese food, uh, American hamburger, steaks, French fries, all that kind of stuff is, is staples in my diet. Um, now, with that said, I have always, you know, well, more of my life I was a swimmer than I have been a powerlifter. So, I was 180 pounds soaking wet for nine or, you know, let's say 70% of my life. So I was able to eat literally anything. I mean, we're talking fast food every day, almost for 15 years. And I, you wouldn't be able to tell now, probably not so good for the heart, probably not so good for the arteries and things like that, cholesterol levels, but being an avid swimmer took care of a lot of that. My heart was fine. I mean, I had checkups all the time. Um, but when you stopped all of that cardio 
and you are in a strength sport where there's less of that going on, that could definitely be a problem. So, you know, and, and obviously, you know, I didn't start powerlifting until I was 34. So I was already in an age bracket where you start, you start wondering, okay, I'm, I'm a dad, you know, I'm a father of well, now three, but at the time it was two. I'm like, mm, I want to be around for my kids and my grandkids, you know, so I, I'm not going to be eating recklessly for my whole life. And I, I had seen myself able to gain weight very quickly by eating the wrong foods. Um, so when I started powerlifting, I didn't care about weight classes. I just wanted, I just wanted to keep my six pack because that's what I had had my whole life. When I look in the mirror, I wanted to see somebody who looked like they were in fitness, not strong. I, I cared about that, but I wanted to look like I wanted to look the part. And that is a, a mental image in my own head where everybody's got a certain image of themselves. You know, a lot of bodybuilders have that image where they never can get perfect, you know, perfect enough. And that might actually be bad sometimes because you, you tend to overwork when you're probably looking just fine. And a lot of powerlifters have the opposite where they just want to be a strong and they don't care what they look like. I'm in the middle of that. Either, to each their own. You know, I'm not here to tell somebody how to eat, how to live, how to do whatever. Honestly, you're in this life to live the best and the fullest. You do you. Um, but I didn't want to wake up and see a pot belly every morning. Yeah, I just didn't. I, to me, I felt weak if I had that. I almost felt like I'm be, I'm getting the dad bod. I don't want to be the dad bod. I want to be the cool dad. I want to be the dad that's in shape, that looks good. I want my wife to to think that I'm the hottest guy around, you know, I, that's what I wanted. And so it's always been stuck in my head that that's what I should look like. Not because I didn't amount to anything. I just, that's what I had seen my whole life. It's just, you know, it's you, if you wake up one day used to seeing something and you see something completely different, or you see yourself in a picture or a video and you're like, Whoa, wh when did I get flabby arms? Or when did I, what, what happened? it does something to you because you don't see your actual image that you think you are, isn't what you're actually putting out. And so to me, that's kind of my, if I can see visible abs, that's kind of where I'm like, okay, my, my body fat is under control. Um, and so that's kind of where that's my, you know, thermostat, if you will, that keeps me in check. I can still get a little heavier, but I sometimes get a little bit to where, okay, I'm, getting a little flabby. So I back off on the junk food. I don't eat as much of the candies or the sweets or the, 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 I, I love sodas. I drink a lot of Coke and, you know, Pepsi and stuff like that. But if I start seeing myself getting a little bit out of shape visibly, I just back off on that. And it normally straightens itself out within a couple of weeks, uh, maybe even less because I mean, it just sugar itself can, can take a lot of that away. Um, but lifting really heavy and being in strength sports burns a lot of calories. I mean, it, it, it does not as much, much as swimming, but I mean, I can blast through about 8,000 calories a day on three heavy workouts a week and still be maintaining weight and, and eat, you know, 8,000 plus calories a day. Most of it is fairly clean. I would say, you know, it's like, I would say an average day, you know, I get up and I, I'm not a really big breakfast eater, but I kind of force myself to eat it so that I'm starting a day and not cramming all my food into lunch and dinner. Uh, and I normally have three major meals, but, you know, I'll get up, have a shake, which is normally, I would say about 600 calories uh, plus, it might be closer to a thousand because I do add, 
uh, I had milk to it. I have, you know, normally two scoops of protein, so like 50, 50 grams of protein. Uh, and then I'll maybe put a couple scoops of peanut butter in there just for extra oomph. Um, so maybe not quite, you know, maybe 800 calories or something, but that's kind of a start of uh, that plus um, like a Jimmy Dean sausage sandwich, you know, just a pre-cooked, you know, preservative filled, you know, the, the organic eaters out there would hate me for saying that. <laughs> right. But that's, that's my, I mean, that's my breakfast. It's, it, it, it gets me going. And then lunch is normally like today. Uh, I had like two Chick-fil-A sandwiches, some fries and a, and a large sweet tea. And that was pre-workout. Uh, after workout, I had a big double cheeseburger with extra cheese, bacon, fries, and two cherry Pepsis. I mean, that, that, and that, and then probably a few sleeves of Ritz crackers or some Doritos, um, probably a shake for dinner or I'm sorry, a shake before I go to bed. Uh, maybe a slice or two of like app or, um, like lemon pie. No, that's not a high calorie day. I don't think that's not an 8,000 calorie day, but right now while things are a little bit stressed out and money's a little tight, things like that, that's, that's basically how I'm eating. And I'm, I'm actually losing a little bit of weight by eating like that. Um, but a typical day, I mean, two or three cheeseburgers, uh, and, and I say cheeseburgers, not from McDonald's. I'm talking like from a legitimate restaurant that probably doesn't just use straight grease. It's 100% beef. You know, it's 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 a better than most cheeseburgers uh, kind of thing. But, you know, I've I've been known to eat a couple pizzas a week um, here, you know, ordering pizza twice a week or so. Um, I will um, drink quite a bit of milk throughout the day just because i feel like i'm it's a little better than you know i drink water of course but you know what milk i can get some extra calories in um i eat a lot of mexican food so a lot of enchilada platters fajitas for two two pounds of fajitas with all the fixings chips and salsa stuff like that um and the thing is you know i will eat like that as long as when i go to the doctor and i get a checkup and they say your cholesterol is good your blood pressure is good. All this stuff checks out still. I will eat like that because it's a lifestyle that I like. I want to eat that stuff because I enjoy eating that stuff. Now, the day that I go into the doctor and they say, hey, we're having some issues with your cholesterol. We need to watch, you know, need you to watch some stuff. I don't have a problem changing my lifestyle and eating certain foods or taking certain stuff out or not eating as much greasy food or whatever. But and I'm sure that day will come, but you know, I'll be 40 in uh, July. So I'm just living life um, kind of, uh, I don't want to say recklessly, but by the seat of my pants, I'm enjoying it. And I'm enjoying time with family and eating. And so eating is part of fellowship and, you know, just kind of hanging out with friends and family. And uh, I don't drink a lot of alcohol at, at very rarely. Um, so the lifestyle choices are, if food is the only thing that's kind of on the outskirts, I think I'm doing okay. But, you know, I say that because I don't want people to just assume, oh, well, I can just go eat, you know, whatever I want, not care. I very much care what I'm putting into my body as long as when I go and do a checkup, it's not, hey, your your blood pressure is through the roof and your cholesterol levels are, are about to kill you. Do you really want to live like this? I wouldn't have a second thought to go, Oh, I guess I'm eating a bunch of salads from now on. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's just, that's fine with me. You know, plain chicken and salads and rice for the next six months to get my levels in check and start changing things up. It is what it is. Um, but 
it's it's easier to keep weight on by being able to eat kind of anything in sight. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I can definitely attest to that. I think, you know, when I very first started, you know, weight training at all kind of in high school after uh, I played rugby. And after I stopped playing rugby because I didn't want brain damage and shifted more to the weight training. Um, I remember my, yeah. my appetite just skyrocketed. And uh, both my parents are uh, runners. My dad was a marathon runner. Uh, they played tennis, you know, very active people. Um, and they're both very skinny people. And so I started just ballooning and they're like, well, where did this guy <laughs> come from? And I was like, well, I was like, I guess this is more my natural size. So we still laugh because I'm the one that's weighs 270 and nobody has any idea where it came from, but I could really maintain that because I am training. So that is, that's just such an interesting point. You know, you mentioned rugby and I totally forgot. I just skipped right over this. Um, so I did the um, – when I stopped swimming in 2008, I started gaining some weight. And so I went and, – and we're living in an apartment complex. I started training with a couple guys for weight training. One of the guys – I still am friends with him on Facebook and still – actually, he's a client of mine. Uh, he was – he had just graduated high school uh, probably about a year or so before. He was going to like a community college or something like that but he did not have a football team. He was a football star in high school and for whatever reason, couldn't get into like a D one school. And so he was training for a regional football combine. And just so happens that, you know, I'd been training with him for a while. He had about a four Oh five, four fifty five bench. And we kind of kept going back and forth. He was one of the guys that would kind of push me and I'd, I'd work out with him and he'd be like, Hey man, I got four Oh five today. What are you going to get? And I do four Oh five. And we kind of chased each other for a little bit. And he's like, hey, um, I'm doing this combine in Dallas. Would you want to ride up with me and just hang out for the weekend? I'm like, that sounds kind of cool. What kind of combine is it? I, you know, I didn't even know. He's like, well, it's, it's, I'm basically trying out for the NFL, but I have to go through like the, the local regional level of tryouts first. And then if I make it to the national, then maybe I'll have a shot at trying out for the NFL. And I said, man. Yeah, let me let me see if the wife's cool with that. You know, I'll drive up with you. You know, it's basically like a two and a half, three hour drive from here. And sure enough, you know, ended up doing it. Well, while I was up there, I just on a whim was like, you know, hey, I'm going to see if I can try out the guy. He thought the guy that was I was buying the ticket to actually be a spectator thought that I was there to try out and asked me, are you here to try out? I went, no, I was actually just going to watch my buddy. He goes. Well, if you're going to be here, why don't you just try out? If you're going to be sitting in the sun all day long in the stands watching your buddy, why don't you, you look like you're you know pretty fast or pretty fit? You know, why don't you just come out and try out? I didn't realize what he was trying to do. Is that that little money? It's a money maker. The the uh, the regional combines. You pay a hundred bucks, you get a shot at a at a kind of a pipe dream. Now, if you're good enough, you have a real legitimate shot at making a free agent spot on an NFL team. But you have to go through the process. But most 90 percent of the guys that go there, it's just they're just making money on them. Right. So I didn't realize that at the time they were basically just saying, hey, instead of sitting in the stands paying 20 dollars to watch, how about you just pay us 100 and, and try out? I naively thought, fine, I'll try out. I, no way I'm going to make it. I didn't realize that they're just trying to make money on me. Well, I went out and they said, OK, what position you want to try out for? Now, mind you, I hadn't played football in 10, well, 15 years. So I had no, I was like, I don't know what's the, what's the big guy on this side of the line. (laughs) 
<laughs> he goes, uh, maybe like defensive. He goes, you look like maybe a defensive tackle or a linebacker. And I went, okay, let's just go with defensive tackle. So I just signed up, DT, put my weight down. I think I was like 245 at the time. And I show up in the locker room, and he's like, dude, what are you doing in here? I'm like, I'm trying out too. He goes, are you serious? I'm like, I'm trying out. I don't know what I'm doing. He goes, okay. And he literally gave me the rundown of what the position does. I I don't watch football that much. I just – I'm not like that I'm anti-football. I just didn't have an interest. And so, I, you know, if I'm going to watch it, I want to be at the game. I, I was the type that would go and watch a game in the stands versus watching it on TV. I don't even watch powerlifting on TV for the most part. I mean, I try to support the sport, but I want to be there. <laughs> and so in 2009, I think it was, I tried out uh, for the regional NFL combine in Dallas, Texas. And they were like, okay, you're really fast. You're really strong, but you're about 60 pounds underweight. Right. You're not a defensive tackle. We're not going to put you on an NFL team weighing 245 pounds to hold up a 350-pound guy on the other side of the line. He goes, you did good, but next year maybe come back as a linebacker, but you're going to have to be faster or gain 60 pounds and come back as a defensive tackle and try out again. Well, we drove home, no big deal. I get home, and I didn't really think much about it. I was like, okay, I had a cool day, whatever. I tried out. My wife's like, are you serious? And I told her, I said, you know, they said I have a shot if I – came back as a defensive tackle, you know, was 60 pounds heavier. She's like, ha that's funny. That means you got to be like 300 pounds. Yeah, right. And then uh, I said, well, or if I went back and trained my 40s and trained my shuttle and my vertical and stuff like that and put up better numbers for what a smaller guy should have. Because I was fast for a defensive tackle, but I, I weighed 245 pounds running a 4.7. Uh, that for a linebacker was like average. <laughs> I needed to be running like a four, 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 five as a linebacker. Well, if I gained 60 pounds and I was still able to run a four, seven, I might actually turn some heads. It didn't really stick until a couple months later. I thought if this is a shot for me to make the NFL and I don't take it, I'm stupid. And I'm like, I don't even play football. Like I, I need to learn the sport. I need to figure out what I'm doing, you know, so I can at least play the part. And because I, I really looked dumb the first tryout, I was, you know, my footwork sucked. I, my, I had decent numbers as far as the, the, the physical test, but, um, long story short, the next year I registered as a defensive tackle. I went up there to, I went up at 292 pounds. I want to say now I knew that they wanted you to be at 302. So my plan was to get there. And just before weigh-in, I was going to down like a gallon of water to make up the extra weight and then throw it up because you don't do the tryout itself until the next day. So you weighed in like the day before, kind of like powerlifting, if you will. And then to get all that out of the way, you know, they took all your measurements one day. They let you rest and, and recover and then show up and do the tryout the next day. Well, I did the, the regional combine. I was about 294, which – they didn't care about the weight as much at that combine as much as they did at the national. Cause that's where you were in front of teams. So I went in like 294 ish or 292 did all my stuff and smoked it all. I had like a 38 and a half inch vertical weighing 294 pounds. I did um, a three something short shuttle. My 40 was like right at four, seven, five ish uh, 225 on bench press. I did like 43 reps 
Um, I mean, mind you, I was this was around the time and I was benching about five twenty ish. So two twenty five, I was like smoking it, and I got invited to the national combine in Indianapolis, uh, two thousand ten, before the Super Bowl was there. And so I went up there, like I don't know, maybe a month later, got in front of about ten NFL teams. And was able to showcase. I have that video actually on YouTube of me in the Lucas Oil Stadium doing the tryout. But I went in I, the night before. I weighed in uh, at 302 pounds because in the hotel room before the weigh-ins, I just took the cup of hotel, you know, the, the little paper cup that they had by the sink. And I just downed as many glasses of water as I could possibly stand, like lukewarm temperature. Went wow. down with a freaking belly on me. I mean, because – at this time, I, I looked the part. I, I looked like 300 pounds. It should, I did not look like how I look now at 300 pounds. And, um, but they didn't care. They, I mean, they want you to perform on the field. They don't care what you look like. Um, but weighed in 302, talked to a few guys and, you know, with scouts and things like that, and they were like, we really like your numbers from the regional combine. We like your weight. You know, you really, you know, I think we can make something of this. And, uh, you know, we look forward to seeing you try out on the field tomorrow. And uh, I got a shot. I mean, I actually got an agent that I picked up and, and it was really looking promising for a while there. Uh, you know, I got to work out in front of like 10 different teams in the stadium. Um, I was one of two. I was actually the top defensive tackle free agent wise. We're talking not from the draft and not from the league. So, but just regular guys trying out in the nation. So I was the top defensive tackle at the time who didn't know a lick. I mean, I had played a down of football in 16 years, but I was faking it. I was just like, fake it till you make it. I guess, you know, I, if, if I'm really, the talent is there, I'm coachable. They'll figure out a way to put me on somewhere, or at least it's a practice squad. You know, I, I make some money, say I'm in the NFL and maybe I'll never play an actual down in my life in the NFL, but Hey, it's a, it's a challenge. I could, I might actually have a shot. And, um, I, you know, I kept pretty cool the whole time because I realized that it's a very tall order to even make the NFL. I mean, some of the best guys that play in college football don't get a shot. Um, and so I knew that all along. Plus, at the time, I'm like 30, 30 years old, and I knew that most guys that try out are like 20. So I, I get it. You know, I don't play – you know, I don't play – I haven't played in college. I'm not well-known. You know, I'm just a strong guy trying to, to, to fake it. <laughs> and um, ended up having to play some – so the Carolina Panthers were going to be like the team that I was really getting a shot at. And so come to find out, okay, we need you to get some game film. You know, before we commit you to anything, you're not going to just put you on a practice squad. We want to see your hands. We want to see you make plays. We want to see what you do on the field. Do you have some game film? And I'm like, absolutely not. I'm just a regular <laughs> Joe off the street. I don't have any of that. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a business guy. And they were like, okay, well, can you get some? Can you play for a college in your area? Can you, you know, figure out a semi-pro team or something? And so I, I considered going back to college just to play football like U of H, but I knew I was going to be redshirted for a year. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. You don't just walk onto a team. And I was like, do I really want to commit all of this? I'm going to have to drop my business for a while, which is pretty successful at the time. It still is, but you know, I wasn't just going to not go to, you know, do my, my business and my livelihood just to go play football in hopes that I might be able to make $80,000 a year on a practice squad. You know, I knew I wasn't going to make the actual first draft or, any, or uh, first string or anything like that. I wasn't getting millions, but 
just to, to have a shot at it was cool enough for me being a regular Joe, if you will. And so um, I basically went back to home to Houston. I played for like three or four different teams because semi-pro is just is just ridiculous. It's just, it's, I'm sure there's a couple of teams out there that, that have it together, but it's just a bunch of guys that are pretty, uh, I don't want to bad mouth all teams, but there's a lot of washed up players that used to be really, really good. that just can't let it go. Now I'm not saying that they're bad now, but just like with anything, I mean, at some point you're going to reach a peak where you're at your best. And then after that, you're just having fun. And you, and you have to realize that you're just having fun at some point. And that's fine if you are. But some people get hurt like that because if you're playing on a team, you know, with guys that are gung-ho and some that are just out there for the afternoon, you know, football game, and people like me that are trying to make something of it, you have some jealousy. You have some, you know, people trying to take you out at the knees. It's just weird stuff. And I ran into a lot of that where I was having to, like, really – learn the game and fake it and not be the guy who didn't know anything about football on a football field with a bunch of freaking jocks that are looking to just break your head off at any moment. And so I couldn't show any weakness. It'd be like going to prison and knowing that you are scared to death, but not showing everybody else that you're scared to death and you have no idea how this whole thing works. You want to at least act like you know how it works so that people leave you the hell alone. So that was a very weird couple of years you know year and a half or so where i played some semi-pro football i was pretty good at it um but long story out of all that is my age is what kept me from really getting a good solid shot they were just like look you're you're going on 32 years old yeah you know you're you're older than everybody else you don't have a lot of experience you know the fact is this is a business we really want a guy that's 20 years old that we can kind of discard when we need. We don't want some old guy in here, you know, calling the shots, even though they knew I wasn't going to be like that. Statistically, that's what they're going to get. If they get a 30 plus year old guy in there is you know, somebody who's been through the ringer, who's been injured, who doesn't want to learn and be coachable. And, you know, it's it to them. They just want a quick, you know, the scouts of these teams, they just want guys to come in real quick and see what they can make of them and use, you know, what they can and then discard and go to the next one. I mean, that's, it's the business. Um, but that was a very um, surreal time of kind of greatness, if you will, that I had yet to tap into. And I thought if I can fake it on something like this and be at least considered for one of the most elite sports team leagues in the world, I'm, I'm good at, you know, being, I, I can do something, whatever I choose to do, I'm going to be pretty good at. And so when powerlifting came along, I was like, oh yeah, I got this. Like I, I could be really good at this if I really trained. I didn't really believe it until I started getting good. And then I was like, I'm actually getting pretty good at this. What happens if I actually train for this? Like I, I was just playing around in the gym and got a 600. What happens if I really trained, ate right, got a coach, followed a program, rested and recovered properly and didn't just, you know, kind of fly by the seat of my pants. Next thing I know, I'm hitting 650, hitting 660, 670. And it really wasn't until like a couple of years ago that I really started going, I could actually be one of the greatest in this sport and and not just for the sake of saying it's a, a ribbon around my neck and say, okay, this is really something that I'm good at. I'm you know, pat me on the back, but I could use this as a platform 
to reach a lot of people. And so that's, it's really blossomed into that quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, there's, there's so few people really get that opportunity. I think that you've gotten that really you've on a lot of levels managed to do a lot with a little, you know, of really being able to just take those opportunities and obviously it's blossomed into something phenomenal, um, you know, the impact that you have been able to, um, to have in the last, you know, decade or so, uh, particularly as you've, you've blown up in powerlifting. I mean, 2014, you know, you're squatting 225 at your first meet. And now we're looking at almost a 2,200 pound total, you know, that even that much can happen in six years. Um, it's just remarkable. Um, well, yeah, yeah. kind of as we wrap up, uh, you know, cause we're running out of time here. Um, my last kind of question for you, uh, and, and I really want to make a point of assets for everyone. Um, you know, everyone's got their walks, everyone's got their own, you know, a personal battle with, with who they are, you know, where they come from, what their motivation is. And so I wonder if anything, you know, where does your own personal faith, you know, come into your training, you know, if at all. So everything, and I always take this all the way back because my training is one facet of my life. Um, and I, and I would stress that to anybody that don't just have one facet there's several things that you could be really good at. You just have to find what they are. Now don't spread yourself too thin. Cause then you, you need some balance, but that takes me into the balance subject that I, I like to really, really hammer uh, when I have a, an opportunity because without balance, everything falls apart for me. And I really think that's true for everybody. If you're, if you're very much one-sided, you can't truly be good at, what you're trying to be good at because you got like if you're in the gym every day, eventually you're going to burn out. I don't care how much you enjoy it. And if you don't burn out, you're going to, you're not going to recover and you have to recover in order to be good at strength sports or to any sport, you have to have a balance. And so my balance is very much centered around my faith. And that starts from, you know, God, but my family and kind of the order of things that I, I take um, of importance. And so a lot of people will say, you know, God, family, this, that, and the other, but it really is. I mean, first of all, if I'm not good with God, then I feel like, and, and this could, you know, I, in my own walk, I don't think about it in terms of this, but, you know, and I think with most people that are pretty superstitious or, you know, karma based belief or what goes around comes around kind of thing, you know, if you look at it like that, whatever God is to you, if you aren't utilizing your gifts the way that they should be given, they're going to be taken away from you. And I truly believe that is the case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that's how you get to heaven. Um, and I, I have friends of all walks of life who believe other things and I can respect everybody. And I mean, I've grown up in a very multicultural society, uh, different races, different creeds, different cultures. I mean, it's just, it's crazy uh, what I've been experienced or what I've been exposed to. And I've talked to um, people of Islamic faith and Buddhist, and I can rationalize with a lot of what they believe in. And I may not agree or see eye to eye with what their particular belief system is, but I can see that in their own life, they utilize it to be a better person. And that's, I think ultimately we should all strive to do that. But when it comes to me, 
if I if I feel like that I am messing up because I am not maintaining my moral duties with my faith, then I, I cannot be a good husband. I cannot be a good dad. And if I can't be a good dad and a good husband, I definitely am not going to be a good lifter or a good business person or a good friend to anybody else. So it's with me, it is a central hub. It starts from the top down. And I would like to discuss that more. It's just, I haven't really found a way to do it because I hear a lot of people talk about their faith. And I, I, I just feel like a lot of people, when they talk about it too much, they, it's almost, it goes, it falls on deaf ears. Cause I think in this day and age, you have a lot of people that do it for show and they do a lot of things for show, but if you're constantly talking about God and you're doing something completely different, how do you believe that what that person is saying is true? I mean, if, if somebody's constantly talking about their faith walk, but they're cheating on their wife, h- how is that true? You know, how, how's what they're saying true? Or if they're talking about balance, but they don't have balance, somewhat of, of what they're basically saying, their integrity is, is, is flawed. And so I am a true believer in walking the walk. Mm-hmm. If I am living my life the way that I feel like I should, then naturally that is a, I, I am taking a stand through my actions. And that always opens up a doorway for conversation because a lot of people will sit there and go, why do you have peace in your life? Like, how are you, how do you have so much peace with what you're doing in a time like this? And I, that opens the conversation of saying, well, I, I know that ultimately it's not in my hands. It's in God's hands. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's my belief system and it works very well for me. Uh, because of all the successes I've had, I, you know, it, it roots back to me firmly believing that there was a situ- there's a time in my life when at a pivotal point, it could have gone very, very wrong. And I could be sitting here on the, on the same conversation on the exact polar opposite end of the spectrum, talking to you from a prison cell saying, well, I had an opportunity when I was 14 to go and be a football player or a professional athlete or whatever, but I'm here because I made a bad choice and I'm having to live for it. And there's too many people in life that have done that. And so I feel like I was given an opportunity to do something or do something other than, you know, do, do a lot of things that were great, not just do something that's great. And so I feel like every day I have an obligation to do something great. And I can't just be complacent. I can't just say, okay, well, this is kind of fun. I'm just going to have fun with it. it. I really feel like I'm driven to complete a mission. And every day it's a little different. It might be that I need to be a better dad that day. I might need to be a better husband that day. I might need to talk to my following with powerlifting a little bit more or, you know, whatever it is, you know, be a better friend, be a better community leader, um, I, and it's it really all is based around faith. If I didn't have that, I think it would all fall apart because I wouldn't know I wouldn't have anywhere I wouldn't have any guidance. I wouldn't know where to look for the support ultimately because you can always look at human beings. you know you can say, okay, I need a friend to help me through this time, but we're just human. We're not perfect. we we're flawed and you're going to have somebody that you can't trust at some point in time in your life. That's going to tell you something that's going to hurt you or whatever. You know, your family may do that to you. Your wife or your husband might do that to you, but I have never, I've never been forsaken 
by my God. I'm, God has never led me down the wrong path. He's always been there to support me. So I can 100% put my faith that I'm basically protected. I'm, I'm protected in a way that not necessarily that bad things won't happen, but that I'll be guided down the right path as long as I'm open to what he's trying to show me. Yeah, man, that's so good. And that's such a good note to end this on as well. I mean, I, cause I, I do just so firmly believe in that, um, you know, especially in something that's, that's powerlifting. And I'll kind of close with this. I, I think we compete in a sport that is very easy to worship the idol of self. And it's very easy to worship uh, the numbers and the fans, the following and the strength and recognizing that there's something greater than that. I mean, there's just nothing more powerful than that. Uh, and knowing that there is something better than this, especially in a time now, I mean, people that are listening know, I mean, we're, we're in lockdown. I mean, we're dealing with a pandemic right now and a lot of people are scared, you know, and, and having that peace, you know, that transcends all understanding. There's just so much to go from there. Uh, it's I, so encouraging. I, I say in this time, you know, it, it's, it's very frustrating, very hard to deal with this because this is unprecedented. I mean, I, I was alive, you know, when 9-11 happened, but it didn't affect everybody in their daily life as much as this is affecting everybody. Now, pr- previous generations, you know, they had war, uh, they had the draft, they had the depression. I mean, it, even the Spanish flu pandemic back in like 1918. I mean, I think every generation is going to have something, but this is pretty different. This is affecting everybody kind of the same. Um, and it, and honestly, if, if you really look at it, it's not that bad considering, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm talking about people that are just being stuck at home for sure. now. Yes. People are out of jobs. I mean, heck my business has literally come to a standstill. So I'm in the same boat as the unemployed. Um, you know, I don't know where my next paycheck necessarily is coming from, but I do know, and with this is without a shadow of a doubt, my faith is that everything will be okay. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? I have no idea. I just know that in 10 years, I'm going to be having this conversation with somebody and saying, I didn't know what was going to happen. And yeah, it's very possible that a lot of people are going to lose their homes, lose their job maybe even lose your spouse, maybe lose a loved one through this. I mean, it could get very, 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 very bad for few people here and there. I say lots of people, but the thing is there is a greater plan. And yes, it does interrupt our daily lives right now and what we think is should happen in our own lives. But that's where you have to realize that I don't, I don't believe that we control our destiny as much as humans think we can. I mean, we can control certain things that we've given access to, but we, I mean, there's not one person on this planet that I think can go out right now and say, you know what, I'm just going to you know, do what I want to do, not get the virus, not catch anybody else. To, you know, nobody else is going to get sick because of me, and I'm just going to live my life. You are at the mercy of what's going on right now, and that's how helpless everybody is. But if I, I truly believe this, if we all put our faith and pray, he's the only one that's going to take care of this. Like he knows it's going to be fine in 10 years. This is all going to be something different. We're going to be going through something else. But the one thing that's going to stay consistent is your faith. It, it, do you really believe that you're going to be okay? You know, and ultimately okay. Isn't worldly it's in heaven. Are you going to be in heaven? I mean, if the worst case scenario happens and I, let's say I get the coronavirus and I die. Yes, it is horrible. 
I can't pursue any more dreams. My family misses me. My, my kids don't have a dad. My wife doesn't have a husband. Yes, it's, it's absolutely horrific. But I'm in heaven for eternity. That's something. And, and I say that very carefully because obviously I'm not going to try to be reckless and get there faster than I you know, should. But it, at the end of it all, we are literally just walking around for 100 a, a years and then we're gone. It, yeah. This is over. So this is very much temporary. Um, so make make the best of it, but also realize that you're not really in control of more than 100 years and then you're out. It's it's over. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I mean, that's we, we've covered so much in the last couple hours. I mean, I just want to want to thank you for coming on. I mean, you just said so many good things I know can can really impact a greater audience. I'm um, just so grateful to, to have the opportunity to get to chat with you, especially for this long. Well, I appreciate it. You know, I'm sorry. Sometimes I can be long winded, but there's a lot to say. There's a lot that I didn't even cover. <laughs> there's a lot of aspects. I mean, it's tough to go, you know, into depth with a lot of areas of, of your life. I mean, if I was one sided, it might be a quicker conversation, but it is uh, there's a lot of stuff to cover, uh, and I hope I don't miss anything. That's I hope that I hope this strikes a chord with somebody out there that does something just a little bit different in their life and makes a change. It doesn't have to be in powerlifting, but if the, if I can inspire somebody to be a better version of themselves, I don't even want to know about it. I just want you to do it and to be great. And then someday when we're in heaven talking about it, let me know then, because yeah. you know right now it's I don't want to be saying this because I want any type of recognition or something but if somebody can look at me and go if he did it i can do it because that's all i do i look at other people and i go okay they're just human i can do that and it just it's it's easier to to accomplish things that way yeah it is well you heard it here first folks uh this has been uh such a great conversation with james strickland at swim hack uh on instagram uh also incredible coach programming at benchonly.com uh you can make sure to, to check in with him as he said here uh, more than happy to help you with anything and everything uh, that he can if you truly want to get stronger reach out to him he's going to help you any way that he can as always i'm your host moses allwood thanks for tuning in